Support for the Resilience Project on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In May of this year, a five-year-old girl, Elizabeth Lizzie Shelley, went missing in Logan. Many in the community got involved in the search. Most in the community sent their thoughts and prayers for safe return of the girl. Unfortunately, then, Lizzie's body was found, and uncle is charged in her death. This was and is a community experience, a community trauma. Our communities uh, suffer trauma on a frequent basis. Recent mass shootings are examples. How does a community heal from such trauma? How does the community become resilient? These are questions we want to treat on the program today. And we have in studio Vonda Jump Norman, who's assistant professor of social work at Utah State University and director of the Trauma Resiliency Project at the Family Place. Uh, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Tom. I'm happy to be here. Esther Lee Molino, chief relationship officer at the Family Place, is with us. Thanks. Thank you for having me, Tom. And we also have with us Matthew Wappet, who is a director of Center for Persons with Disabilities at Utah State University. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate you all uh, being here. I'll, I'll start with Vonda. Um, this program uh, comes out of a conversation that uh, you and I, and I think Carrie Bringhurst, uh, were just kind of gathered. At, we we're talking about, I think, another project, and um, but we're all members of the community, right? We were all feeling the effect of uh, Lizzie Shelley's uh, disappearance, and then I think this was the day of her funeral. Yes, that's correct. And uh, just talking about that, that how this was a trauma to the entire to entire community. And our feeling was maybe a little too soon in maybe the week that followed. So we're having this conversation now. Um, I wonder what your th- thoughts are now that this is this was a traumatic event for the community. Absolutely. And, you know, it still remains a traumatic event for the community. There are people who are who are healing from this event who have had multiple things come up for themselves as a result. And there are families, particularly immigrant families that we've worked with, who have increased fear about whether or not they're living in a safe community. And thankfully, we really do live in a safe community in Logan, Utah. We're so fortunate to be where we are. And with that, there are still things that happen in our lives. And that, you know, sometimes they just impact us individually. And sometimes they impact the entire community as this um, horrible occurrence with Lizzie did. Yeah. Esther Lee Molino, I think what just hit my heart was that I can't even remember how long it was. It was a week or so that, you know, the whole community was searching for for Lizzie. And then, unfortunately, the news came and the body was found. Um, I guess this is, the, this is the downside. This is the dark side of community, right? Because I really felt like we were a community. You, people, people out searching, people praying, people pulling together. And then as a community, we felt the full force of, of uh, unfortunately, you know, Lizzie's death. Right, Tom. I, I think one of the beautiful things that came out of such a horrific event was indeed that our community came together. And I think this clearly demonstrates that every single person matters. 
I mean, people were praying for somebody they didn't know, for a family they didn't know. They were out searching. Um, 24 hours a day, there were people performing service for the family, and that's because we're better together. We become more resilient when we have connections, and we know that people care. Um, So although, like I said, horrific, what I have learned is to watch for the helpers. You know, watch for the people who are out making a difference because that clearly overshadows any of the negative that is coming out of the event. Mm-hmm. Matthew Wapat, mm-hmm. uh, we, I, I don't know what effect this has on the most vulnerable of us, <laughs> right? You know, right. A, a trauma like this maybe doesn't directly affect you, but it really does. This was a great example of it does affect us as a community. Yeah, I mean, really what happens to one happens to all. And I think especially in this day and age of high tech where we're isolated by our phones and our technology and everything else, it's easy to feel like you're maybe distanced from this. And yet an event like this really highlights the fact that we are all still a community. What happens to one person and especially the most vulnerable people in our community uh, does have a ripple effect that travels throughout. I think the difficulty with um, technology, and I think this was a great example, um, is that we have more information now. And so 30, 40 years ago, maybe this wouldn't have gotten the coverage it had. It It may not have had the um, wide-ranging implications that it, I, mean, I know that my parents who live in Alaska uh, called me about this because they'd seen it on the news. And so it not only affects our community, but it affects a wider uh, community. But the fact that we have such ready access to information and news and this, it gets out so quickly and it's become so pervasive, I think we need to be aware of the fact that um, this, this amount of information um, can have really deep, lasting psychological impacts and really uh, understanding, you know, how do we balance, you know, the need to know with um, action and getting involved and creating the support networks that um, that are necessary to uh, recover from an event like this. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is one little girl, right, uh, Vonda, um, and she became very important to the whole community in in that time. Um, but there are traumas that happen all the time, right? I, I guess this one, this one really got through to the community. Um, I, I mean, I, I compare my reaction to, and I was right there, my heart going out and, you know, praying for the girl and the family. And, and then just very, very sad when I learned uh, of, of the, what happened to Lizzie. Um, and then I kind of compare that to sort of shielding myself from some of the bigger national traumas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I don't know if I'm just become numb to the, all the mass shootings. You know, the, you get the word of El Paso and Dayton, and, and, um, and uh, I think people with the mass shootings have just come to a point where Congress, nobody's going to do anything, and so... I've just got to protect myself. Is that what's happening? I don't know. Well, you know, that's a really good question. I I can't say that I know exactly what's happening for people. But, you know, sometimes, you know, when we look at the case of Lizzie, it it was right here at home. It could have happened to any of us in our community. And it impacts us 
you know, deeply then, because particularly when there's a child involved, we, we care so much for a child. And it was amazing to see every, all the beautiful things that came out in terms of our community connections. And when you talk about the mass shootings, it's true, we, we just sort of isolate ourselves if it's a place that we don't have a connection to. It's easy to to just be disconnected. But, you know, I was just driving through Dayton, Ohio yesterday, actually on my way back um, from Kentucky and Michigan. Um, and I, I was really struck by different signs there. Again, just showing that our communities come together when there's a need. And one thing that I think about is how strong we are as a community. And sometimes we... I don't know. We we aren't um, we aren't as kind to ourselves about all the great things that we have in our communities. Sometimes it's easy to say what's wrong or what's not going well, and yet if we look at our community, we have the most amazing community, amazing supports. We have so many people who want to serve, people who are there not only in a tragedy, but on a um, community level, but for ourselves personally. And these are things that we can take from this experience this summer and even be more intentional about it, I think. Mm-hmm. If, if we can think about ways that we can support each other actively when we're having hard times. Uh, I just want to parenthetically uh, put out a programming note, um, especially responding to a, a uh, listener who sent me uh, a recent uh, I'd describe it as angry email, <laughs> essentially saying, hey, Tom, you got a radio show. Respond to the mass shootings. Um, and uh, so to, to that listener and, and to the rest of my listeners, uh, we will be doing uh, some programming on that. We, I mean, we responded to just about every one of these mass shootings up and uh, recently, up, up through Las Vegas anyway. Um, and then uh, I've kind of detected among my listeners, at least anecdotally, uh, just sort of a, a resignation, sort of a throwing up of hands, I think because, in part, um, it, uh, many feel helpless. There, there's not going to be action on guns. <laughs> there's going to be a lot of talk on guns. This is what people are telling me. Um, a lot of, you know, thoughts and prayers are thrown out, but nothing's going to be done, and, and, and so, therefore... I, I don't know if, as a listener, if I can engage in a in a in a program about mass shootings. No, nonetheless, uh, we will be responding to that particularly. Um, but we want to talk about uh, resilience um, uh, on this program. And Savanda, you were talking about that. Maybe, and one one way is to remember the good. Is what you're saying? Absolutely. Do you know? Just as you're saying right now that we have these. Uh, these, you know, things that are happening, and we're we're doing it. The way to that we make a difference is through our community connections. We have a caring community, and one way that we can help prevent mass shootings is through increased connection. We can have we can reach out to people who are struggling. We can be there for our neighbors who are having a hard time. And just be that friendly voice to listen, to be there. And that, to me, is a major 
way that we don't have to wait for the government to do anything. Mm-hmm. We, as a community, do that through how we interact with other members of our community. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew Wappet, uh-huh. your, um, your, your center is uh, involved in, um, in some resilience uh-huh. research, right? Yep. So what would you say to this, how, how to become more resilient as a community? Well, I think what Vonda's pointed out is really important, is recognizing um, that you can't do it alone and that it does uh, require a community to, um, to rebound from uh, experiences like this. When we look at the aspects of resilience, what makes a person resilient, probably the most important one, is that social support. A resilient person has a healthy social support network um, that they can rely upon, that that will listen to them, that they can get feedback from. Um, Another important aspect of resilience is altruistic service, helping, getting out and helping. Um, And we know from the research that uh, individuals who are involved in altruistic service in their communities are healthier, happier, live longer. I mean, there's been research for 20 years showing this. And and, um, so that sort of, I guess, paradoxical relationship of giving to get uh, is a really important aspect of resilience. Um, And again, builds that social support networks, builds that community um, and really creates that, that necessary, um, uh, I, I guess we could call it cognitive elasticity, <laughs> for lack of a better term, to bounce back from, from events like this. Um, you know, and then there's personal things that we can do, too. There, you know, we know the exercise is great for, uh, and just physical exertion is good for um, cultivating that, that resilience. Uh, and then healthy mental models and part of that is you know recognizing reality for what it is and then having a series of strategies to um, respond to what is going on in the world around us um, in a healthy way there's unhealthy ways to to respond to stress and there's healthy ways to respond to stress and uh, it's important that we be teaching people these these tools strategies skills uh, in order to recover from events like this Mm. Esther-Lea Molina, I want to take up on the last point. I know fam- the family place, that's teaching strategies, right, to, to families, to parents. That's an important thing that the family place does. Absolutely. Uh, the family place is one of 17 crisis respite nurseries across the state of Utah. So every county in the community has access to a family support center, which is a nonprofit organization that provides parenting education a 24-hour information and referral service, um, 24-hour care for children. So when parents are struggling, if they have young children, there is a place free of charge, completely confidential for parents to drop off their kids to take a break. So definitely focused on strengthening family systems and protecting children. Uh, so what would you say to this larger question? And we'll, we'll be dealing with this throughout the hour, but uh, what's top of your mind when you think of resilience, especially community resilience? Well, I wholeheartedly agree with uh, what Vonda and Matthew have said. And maybe another perspective is I look at the rates of anxiety and depression. And what I've seen over working at the family place for over 25 years is people do want to help and they do want to serve. But a big barrier is asking for help and support for yourself, right? And we're, we are doing a good job at treating other people with compassion, but it's challenging to treat ourselves with compassion, right? It seems like we are our own worst self 
critic. Um, I can have a friend or a family member who makes a mistake and I'm there loving and encouraging and supporting. But maybe when I make a mistake similar, I think, oh, why did I do something like that? And I know better. And we just have this record, this broken record that's playing over and over in our minds that often is pretty critical. So I think another area of focus and resilience is recognizing that it's being strong to ask for help and that everybody has problems. Everybody has struggles. And to be transparent and vulnerable in that way not only helps healing within, but builds connections with other people because they often are going through something similar. They can relate on some type of emotional level. So it's okay that we don't have everything all together, right? And it's okay that we're learning and growing every day and asking for help and support. Um, But really working to treat ourselves as we would somebody that we really care about. Being kind to ourselves as we're learning and growing and making mistakes and Esther Lee, you talk about how many thoughts we have per day. Can you talk about that? Because I I can't remember the number. (laughs) Yeah. So what research has found is that the average person has about 70,000 thoughts per day, 70,000 self-thoughts. And what research has also found is that 95% of the thoughts we have each day are the exact same thoughts that we had the day before. Mm, yeah. So if we have a struggle or a challenge that we're going through, oftentimes we go to bed thinking about it. We may dream about it during the night. We wake up in the morning thinking about it, and it's it's consuming. And what we found is whatever behavior we have, if it's a thought, if it's you know working out or eating healthy or eating unhealthy, whatever it may be, but every behavior that we have that we practice grow stronger. So I have to keep myself personally in check because when I'm having one of these 70,000 thoughts per day, is that a thought that I want to grow stronger or not? So if I'm constantly being self-critical, I get better and better at that. But that is not what I want to be better at. I want to be better at self-compassion and kindness. And so it really is being mindful and intentional and gently changing those thoughts into something that we do want to grow stronger. Yeah. Um, so it starts starts with me, right? That's what you're saying. It starts with my thoughts. That can be helped. You talked about service, talk, reaching out to others. That, that can help you, right? We can build yeah. those connections, stronger connections. Yeah. And that helps yeah. in healing. Would it help in prevention of these traumas? I don't know. Yeah. Yes, I would say, yeah, it absolutely would help with prevention because when you're aware of your thoughts and you're aware of your um, connection and the interrelatedness of our communities, you're less likely to um, go out and commit harm uh, to others. And really sort of that cultivation, that self-awareness, recognizing that, um, you know, you require other people to live a healthy, happy life, and they need you to live a healthy, happy life um, uh, are are important to preventing these sort of experiences. I think part of the problem that we, um, from a lot of these events, is that there's people who feel alienated, distanced, um, not a part of the community, uh, and therefore they don't have that awareness and emotional engagement with the community uh, to, to recognize that they shouldn't be 
harming themselves. It's the same thing with self-harm. People self-harm when they feel distanced from themselves. It's the same thing with the community. People will harm a community if they don't feel like they're part of it and they're not supported in that community. And yet that's a very difficult thing to do. There's people who are challenging to love and include and and uh, to engage in the community. And yet it doesn't mean that it's not a responsibility for every single one of us to reach out to those who are marginalized and who are feeling um, that distance. Yeah. Yes, Esther Lee Molino. Uh, Dr. Kristen Neff is one of the leading researchers in the United States on self-compassion. And what her research has shown that goes right along with what Matthew is saying is when we increase self-compassion, we have lower levels of anxiety, lower levels of depression, greater wisdom. We stop comparing ourselves as much to other people. We're more accepting of one another, um, less procrastinating. And what I've learned is people generally cause harm when they're feeling really bad about themselves inside, right? It's a direct reflection of what's going on inside. So I completely agree that higher levels of self-compassion would help prevent and decrease traumatic experiences. Hmm. And uh, how do we do that? What are the vehicles? Is it, is that government? Is it churches? Is it what, what's. It's all of us. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it, You know, one great thing that could be helpful, particularly for parents who, or people who have become parents and who had really challenging backgrounds where they experienced trauma, maybe at the hands of their caregivers, is how do you learn how to parent? You know, we learn how to parent by how we were parented. And as a former um, child welfare worker, one thing that I saw a lot was that I would say 98 or even 99% of the parents who I worked with who hurt their children, they didn't intentionally do that. You know, they, they loved their children and they wanted the best for them, but they didn't know what to do. And so one way that we can do it is that we can help not only provide support to parents, but also, like Esther Lee said, and you also, Tom, provide, provide education, provide more information about effective parenting techniques, how kids' brains develop, because when children experience these extremely stressful environments, that makes their behaviors much harder to manage because their brains are just in this chaotic, overstimulated, overwhelmed state, and that makes them more challenging to parent. And if a parent can be more mindful and be there to kind of reflect back to the child what they're experiencing, like, you know, you're really angry right now or you're really mad right now, calmly tell me what's happening. We can help calm our kids down. Just by being that calm presence, we calm the other person because we're a species that we co-regulate with other people. And so when one person gets upset or angry than the other person, it's a lot easier for them to to rise to that level. But when one person stays calm, then it's easier for them, the other person, to stay calm. And so I would see that as one important strategy is having empathy for parents in the parenting role. You know, I can tell you that I have my PhD in family and human development. I I specialized in infancy and early development. 
And I didn't know what to do so many times when my child was doing what kids do, right? Mm -hmm. And it's hard. Parenting is really, really hard. And instead of judging what another parent does, if we can empathize with where they are, you know, maybe they had a really hard day at work. Maybe they've got all these financial stressors that are weighing them down and keeping them from being able to be completely present with their child. By being able to empathize and maybe hear their stories, we can support their parenting. Mm. If you just joined us, uh, we're talking about community trauma and community resilience. Um, We uh, think in the Logan area, we're all uh, involved emotionally in the case of Elizabeth Lizzie Shelley, who went missing, a five-year-old girl who went missing. Um, I think all of us sort of, well, not sort of, all got involved with her. Our hearts went out to her during the search, and then the news came that uh, she was she was dead. Uh, an uncle has been charged in her in her murder. Um, we're talking about that. Uh, maybe it, the trauma is mass shooting that happened a thousand miles away, but it still still affects us uh, as as a national community. Um, and then there are individual, you know, private private traumas that uh, you know every day people commit suicide, uh, families have troubles, uh, child abuse, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How do we deal with that as a as a community? How do we how do we become more resilient? That's what we're talking about. We're talking with uh, Matthew Wappet, who is director of the Center for Persons with Disabilities at Utah State University. Esther Lee Molineux, chief relationship officer at the Family Place in Logan, and uh, Vonda Jump Norman, who is assistant professor of social work at Utah State University and director of the Trauma Resiliency Project at the Family Place. Uh, we would love to know what you think. Love to get your comment. You can email us to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Just want to mention that Utah Public Radio and Utah State University Center for Persons with Disabilities uh, is working with the Utah organizations to bring you a new UPR original series. It's called Project Resilience, Becoming Resilient by Overcoming the Resistance. Uh, through caring conversations, we'll provide tips on how to deal with trauma, online directory to connect you with community support services, ways to help individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities receive mental health services. It's Project Resilience on Utah Public Radio, so listen for that as well. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and Cafe Ibis Gallery Deli at 52 Federal Avenue in Logan, featuring triple certified coffee, espresso bar, and Saturday and Sunday brunch from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Details at cafeibis.com. This is Jeannie Simmons for bringing more to life. An unexpected health event can require you to have key information about a parent. Medical history, health and life insurance information, advanced directives, banking information, Deeds and titles, wills, marriage licenses, safety deposit boxes, investments, the list goes on. Parents may be hesitant to discuss personal matters. It can cause a change in the way your family approaches private matters. The more information your parents can share, the less stress on everyone when a health crisis arises. Having these critical conversations can bring more to their lives in ways you never knew. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. 
How do we define and live with risk in unexpected places? You see a lot more populism when we live in uncertain times, and we are living in uncertain times now. I'm John Donvan. That's my guest, Alison Schrager, author of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. Usually, if you visit a sex worker, there's a lot of risk involved. Disrupting the way we talk about risk on the next Intelligence Squared U.S. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about community trauma and community resilience. And I have with me in studio Vonda Jump Norman, Assistant Professor of Social Work at Utah State University. She's also Director of the Trauma Resiliency Project at The Family Place. We have with us Esther Lee Molyneux, Chief Relationships Officer at The Family Place, and Matthew Wappet, who is Director of the Center for Persons with Disabilities at Utah State University. Uh, let me start with with you, Esther Lee Molino. Um, off off air, you were you were saying you you liked the direction I was going at the end of that last uh, <laughs> last segment. That I think we maybe forget about. Um, well, we're not aware of sometimes trauma that's going on in the family next door, or there's there's plenty of trauma <laughs> to, to to go around. Do you know what the what we all know is life is hard. Right. Every day we have a struggle, we have a challenge, and it's an opportunity to grow and overcome. But sometimes those struggles and challenges that we have feel pretty overwhelming, and people tend to have a difficult time asking for help. So I think the media does a really um, good job at covering these larger scale events that impact our whole community. But we have things going on in our own home, and our neighbor has things going on that they could use help and support and assistance in building resilience as well. So, you know, we've talked about a little girl that has been murdered. We've talked about mass shootings. But what about the family that's in a car accident whose child doesn't want to ride in the car anymore? But how do you get to school? How do you get to soccer, you know, et cetera? What about the family who is going through a divorce or somebody who is now reflecting on the fact that they were abused most of their lives and they didn't know that what was happening was wrong. You know, we have difficult things that happen every day, and the way that people can overcome these challenges is through carrying connections with people, through relationships, being able to have conversations without feeling judged, because there's certainly the stigma that if I reach out and ask for help, then it appears like I'm weak or the uh, impression that others have of me is tarnished. When in fact, we heal through vulnerability with one another, having healthy boundaries and working with others to overcome. Mm, good point. Yeah. Matthew Wappet, um, also during the break, we we're talking a little bit about asking for help there there have been studies on this there there have been and you know really building on what Esther Lee said uh, there's a lot of stigma around asking for help Um, especially well and especially for men right being able to acknowledge that you're experiencing anxiety depression um, stress and say I need help dealing with this there's this culture that we're supposed to somehow man up and and deal with it and get through it and um, unfortunately that doesn't always work. I have a good friend I remember in February of this year who committed suicide because he what he didn't feel like he could ask for help. Um, and I remember um, getting that news and just 
the gut punch that that was, you know, what could I have done to reach out to help him more? What could I have done? What did, what signs did I miss? And really what it comes down to is he didn't feel like he could, um, he could reach out and say, look, I'm struggling. And I think that's really, really important that we acknowledge that stigma and that we encourage people to say, it's not weak to say that you need help. Um, we at, at the Center for Persons with Disability, we did a study last year um, looking especially at this issue in rural areas. We were actually looking at health disparities, but the big um, finding of this study was that um, our rural communities are especially struggling with stigma around mental health. And there are people in this study who are traveling 100, 200 miles to get therapy, to get diagnosed, to pick up their um, prescriptions because they don't want people in their community to know that they have depression, anxiety, whatever else. Um, they're making huge sacrifices to sort of hide and maintain this appearance of, of being resilient and being healthy. Um, and as a result, um, the community really can't support them. Uh, so it's a two-way street. To a certain extent, you have to be willing to open up and say, look, I need help. And the community also has to look back at that person and say, um, it's okay. We all struggle with these issues. And, you know, by me helping you, it's going to help the the whole. Um, so that is a community issue. It is. If, if I'm participating in perpetuating the stigma, it absolutely <laughs> part of the problem. Yeah, well. yeah, absolutely. And and stigma around uh, mental health and asking for help um, is just a huge, huge barrier. I can't, I mean, again, the study we were doing was looking at health disparities. We were going to be looking at, you know, access to primary care. And the thing that came out over and over and over again is I don't feel like I can ask for help in my community because of how people will see me, because of how people will judge me. Um, if they find out I have depression or anxiety, right? There's this expectation that we're the perfect mom, the perfect dad, the perfect employee, the perfect whatever. Um, and this, the, the stress of keeping up that appearance um, takes, has a long-term psychological toll and creates stress that in the long run um, can be extremely damaging to a person's psyche. Mm. Yes, Esther Lee. Boy, I, again, just totally support what Matthew's saying, but I think it's also important to look at what's happening with our children. Because Matthew's talking from an adult perspective, like our brains are developed, we know better. And we're often not on social media as often as our children. So if you look at the suicide rates among teenagers and the level of depression and anxiety, because they are, they can be exposed at any given moment. Someone takes a picture, they send it off, and now they feel like the whole world knows something personal about them that they didn't want to share. So we definitely see this cycle has formed. So when we're talking about reaching out and asking for help as an adult, how important is that to be that example for our children? Right. Because they need to know it's okay if we're struggling because they have the same feelings. And if it's okay for us to ask for help, then they are more likely to ask for help as well. Mm-hmm. You know, traditionally, we've we as a society have viewed females accessing support and help a little bit more favorably. If we look at the way traditionally we have raised our male children, yep. so much of what's happened is that we, you know, a little boy falls down and starts to cry because it hurts. You know, so often in the past, and I think it's happening less and less, thankfully. 
what a person might say is, oh, get up. Boys don't cry. You know, rub, knock it off. Rub it off. It's okay. And for our boys, and I think about with our mass shootings, with our school shootings, so often in our society, the emotions that we have made okay for boys to experience are anger and aggression. Mm -hmm. To express sadness or vulnerability, we haven't accepted that as much. And that that is a huge disservice to the males in our society because we all experience that wide range of emotions. And for females, you know, we get a lot of support in that. And and for our males, I'm just not as sure that we give as much support. Right. Yeah. Uh, Vonda, I wonder uh, if if you would tell us a story that you sent to me by email. Uh, this goes under the heading of... Community compassion. Maybe we shouldn't wait for someone to ask for help. Maybe we ought to offer that help. Ah, that's a great, a great heading for it, Tom. So I was at Macy's about a month ago or so, and I had hurt my leg, so I was going in to go buy some frozen peas. And I was going to be late to a meeting because I decided on the way, I better get these peas. And I just texted to say I'm going to be late. And they wrote back and said, actually... The meeting is not happening today, which I didn't know. And I went into the store, and I noticed on the way way in there was this young woman who I thought she was eating in her car. I came out, and I was talking to my husband who was out of town. And then I looked over again, and that same woman was there. And I looked closer, and she was despondent, just despondent. And I thought for a second, and I said, you know, I'm just going to go tell her I'm so sorry about whatever is happening in her life. So I knocked on her window. She rolled it down, and she, and I just said, I'm so sorry. It seems like you're having a really hard day. And she, she began talking, and she's a professional in the community. She has so many strengths and she was having a really hard day she actually just said you know I I just don't see a way out and we ended up talking for about an hour and we laughed we cried we we just talked and her load was lighter at the end of that time together you know she said you know just talking about it helped so much and I just appreciate you stopping and showing that you cared because sometimes I just feel so alone hmm. yeah uh, that's wonderful I mean uh, my first reaction is I want I want you for my neighbor right <laughs> uh, but but and I say that in jest but um, it's because it's somewhat unusual isn't it I, I don't know does this does this, this happen uh, I, if I'm having a bad day I, I want someone to knock on my window but I don't know how many people do that. Uh, very few. Yeah. Very few because we've learned to, again, perpetuate. We, we take care of ourselves. We don't want to get in somebody else's business. We don't, we don't want to be intrusive. We don't want to be invasive. Um, I think about some of the conversations I've had with my family and others over the past 
couple of years where it's like, well, what's the best way to communicate? This has been a conversation among my extended family. Oh, just text us. Texting us is easier. And yet I think Vonda's story points out that that, that listening and talking and that personal connection that comes through that is so, so important to feeling like you have the support necessary uh, to be resilient, to go on. And especially, um, especially with children and modeling that good listening um, and also the, the ability to express, you know, what we as adults are feeling in terms of our stressors, our anxieties, everything else is important to teach our kids. Yeah. Um, as well, but yeah, that talking, that personal connection, and really making that effort to reach out and listen um, becomes so important. And yet, with technology and the way that our world is going today, it's becoming less and less common. I mean, how many of us actually answer our phones? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> we can, oh, it goes to voicemail or text us. Don't I'm not gonna. I don't. I don't have time to talk. Um, and yet, that talking is so so important to feeling like, you know, you you can do it. Mm-hmm. You can do it. Esther Lee Molino, you you talked earlier about uh, social media, especially as it affects kids, right? And and it seems to me there's just, and this is my experience, technology, social media is sort of distancing. I mean, it's it's not it's not the connection that we used to have. Yes. So when Vonda first shared her story with me, I was just so moved because this is just who Vonda is, and. The four points that really stuck out to me in that story was one is Vonda stopped and took the time to talk with somebody in need, right? Two, she was empathetic. Sometimes people don't know what to say, like somebody's crying and it feels uncomfortable. So what do you say? And she said, gosh, I'm sorry, you're having a hard day. Um, Next, there was no judgment. And so that person felt safe talking with her. And then lastly, they didn't come up with a solution. You know, it was just somebody to talk to and to listen. And so tying in, uh, Tom, with your question about social media, I think social media is an excellent way to communicate, but a terrible way to connect, right? We can send a text quickly to communicate something, but there's not that connection. There's not that eye-to-eye conversation that you're not sensing where the other person is coming from and what their feelings may be. So I, you know, certainly pros and cons with social media, but what I'm seeing even with my own teenagers is they much rather text somebody or to post something because they can edit themselves, right? When we're having a face-to-face conversation, I go back to that vulnerability because what if I say something that I wish that I didn't? Or what if I sound really dumb? Or what if somebody takes a picture of me and my eyes are kind of closed or it looks like I have a double chin? I mean, you hear that a lot from kids, but in social media, like we can edit what we're going to say so you sound better or you can edit your pictures so you look extra good and and so it feels scary to have real life conversations because it's it's your true self instead of the edited version. But don't we want people to be genuine and authentic? I mean that's what's most important, but it feels like to me we're moving so far away from that trying to be perfect or ideal in other people's eyes instead of feeling comfortable where we're at with ourselves. Yeah. Mm. An important part of that editing 
is going back to that notion of stigma and keeping up appearances. Now that we have social media, we have this this ability to really uh, be very intentional about this face that we put out there on social media to the world. And unfortunately, life isn't that clean and isn't that beautiful. Uh, I know I'm probably making my kids upset right now, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. Uh, life is life is messy. Life has drama. Life is not something that you can that you can edit and yet social media I think encourages that to say I, we're going to hide all of this stuff that's really happening in our lives and we're going to put on this other face to the world um, and that's I think where it can become very damaging. We do have a caller uh, Carl in St. George is uh, is with us. Carl glad you called. Thank you. Um, folks I think you better be careful what you're preaching, because no matter how how you smooth it over and make it look normal concerning mental health, if you go into a doctor with mental health problems, that goes on your record, your medical record. And any time you go for a job and they want to review your records, that stands out and it goes, I guess it goes with you forever on your record, that you had mental health problems and went in for counseling or whatever. But it, it's on your record. How do you get around that? So, Carl, you're talking about a, that stigma being sort of codified into law, or that's on on a record. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. In other words, uh, people look at mental health; they can't quite get their minds around it. They can't a broken leg or a broken back or uh, you know some other health problems. But when you say mental health, there's all kinds of red flags that go up. Right. And I think that that's just a misunderstanding in our society, because when a person has mental health challenges, you know, just like you mentioned, a broken leg with a broken leg, we can actually physically see the cast. But when a person's brain fires differently or connects differently, we can't always see that. And it's every bit as valid of an illness as you know, that diagnosis of a broken leg or a cold, any of those sorts of things. And what happens for a person who does have, like, let's say, depression. So that's a time when the brain is firing differently and there are some neurotransmitters that maybe aren't being as effectively transmitted. And so when a person gets medication, then... They just get help to help their brain fire more effectively because it's not working in the same way as a different person's brain. And over 50% of our population will experience depression at some point in time in their life. And so... Well, you're, you're talking about the symptoms. I'm talking about what goes on your record. There can be a hundred different symptoms of mental uh, problems. But it goes on your record as a mental problem. Yes. And I don't know how the public's ever going to get over that um, that hurdle. Uh, Carl, uh, thank, thanks for the call. Appreciate that. We'll have our, our guests re- respond to Carl Calden in St. George. And, and I think maybe a little bit of what he's getting at is economic. I don't know if the insurances and such is, has, has progressed to the point where we'd, we'd like them to. Um, also, if it's on your record and if there are people in the community who hold these stigmas, then that's going to leave you vulnerable to that. I guess yep. a couple of points. He's, yep, it does. Yeah. Um, and part of that is 
something that uh, laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act and other civil rights legislation is intended to help address. Unfortunately, although we have laws that do make it um, illegal to discriminate against somebody as a result of a diagnosis, uh, people still do it, unfortunately. And so really the only way around that is education and really having conversations like this to make people aware of the fact that, you know, I don't know what percentage of the population has broken legs or, you know, visible external injuries, but mental health issues are certainly more prevalent than, you know, broken legs and other uh, other physical maladies. Um, and really helping people understand, recognize that, and uh, accept that is uh, a really important conversation that we need to have. And if we're not willing to have those conversations, if we're not willing to acknowledge that these are um, issues that we all experience, um, then yeah, we're going to continue to struggle with the stigma and the discrimination that goes along with um, with these sort of things. And unfortunately, it is deep rooted. It takes time to challenge these stereotypes. And sometimes what we look at is really important because that person who has some mental health di- diagnosis has so many strengths as well, has so many just positive qualities and abilities. And when we begin to focus on the abilities that a person has, then we as a community can access those great resources or assets as part of our community. We have uh, just about three minutes left in, in the program that the, the conversation has flown by. Thank you for the conversation. Uh, so I'll just go around, the, go around our panel here, to final, final comments on community trauma and community resilience, uh, Vonda. My big thing would be compassion, that we as a community, we, we need to be compassionate with each other and realize that we all have hard times. We all have easy times also, and we need to plow through those hard times and try to support each other and enjoy the good times. Esther Lee. My message would be, even though we have hard things that happen to us, it's not a predictor for horrible things to come, right? So I could have experienced something difficult as a child, but I can still live a fulfilling life. And I can uh, treat others and myself the way, you know, that I want to be treated. It's the basic golden rule. So we can overcome. Mm-hmm. We have the power within. Uh, Matthew. I would say, to kind of summarize my thoughts, uh, don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to reach out and um, and acknowledge that you maybe you're struggling with some of these issues. These are difficult things to to deal with alone, and uh, it's important that we have that help. And on the other side of that, uh, listen. I think again, Vonda's story, and it, it comes up over and over and over again. Listen, reach out, find opportunities to support others, uh, in spite of what our technology is doing these days. Um, We are social creatures and we require that human connection and we can't be resilient without it. Well, interesting discussion, uh, important discussion to to have and to keep having. Um, Utah Public Radio and Utah State Utah State University Center for Persons with Disabilities uh, is uh, presenting a new UPR original series, Project Resilience: Becoming Resilient by Overcoming Resistance. And uh, so, listen for that on uh, on UPR, and uh, keep the comments coming um, to upraxcess at gmail dot com. Upraxcess at gmail dot com. We appreciate you uh, being with us uh, today. Uh, Tomorrow, novelist uh, Richard Russo 
um, author of Empire Falls and uh, Nobody's Fool. He's out with a new uh, book, and uh, we have an interesting discussion, uh, including a discussion on the Vietnam War and reverberations from that war. That'll be coming up uh, tomorrow, and uh, thanks for listening today. Support for the Resilience Project on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. Say you have a baby. Do you see the owl? You raise her with love. One day I'm going to be able to tell her, you can do this. Push yourself. <laughs> the kid's going to turn out exactly as you planned, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, hold on here. It would be nice if life was like that, but life isn't like that. Life is hard. Are we bound by our DNA, or can a parent change it? That's on the next Radio Lab. Tomorrow morning at 10 on UPR. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including music concerts, live theater, classes, workshops, art shows, lectures, festivals, volunteer opportunities, and much, much more. Just check out upr.org and head to our community calendar page. There you'll find our user-friendly submission link and the submission guidelines. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action. Online at utahhumanities.org. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU-FM Logan, also heard online at upr.org. Utah Public Radio is broadcasting engaging and impactful stories of Utah 24 hours, 7 days a week on the air, but we have a lot more to say and so much more for you to hear. The UPR social media team is bringing you Utah's most important stories right to your feed, Stay up to date and join the discussion by connecting with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Don't forget to use the hashtag IamUPR. Why wait? Pick up your mobile device now and get the most out of Utah Public Radio. And just as always, stay tuned for more on the air from UPR.